the year would be on for a real roller coaster ride. It's you know it's traded from 18 up to 30, back to mid 20s now, around 22. Um, I think this volatility continues, and and partly it's year end. Um, you know, as we head into the the sort of uh, Christmas season, there's likely to be you know less liquidity, so more volatility. You've got uh, obviously this Omicron variant and exogenous factors hitting the market. Overall, I think equities are still um, uh, are still uh, valued on the basis of lower interest rates. So really the main factor that will determine equity investor sentiment will be where interest rates are heading. And if they're going to head higher quicker, that might be a factor that drives uh, uh, increased uh, uh, weakness in the equity market. Toby, have a great weekend. Thank you very much. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of... The CEO of Society General India. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week. In Australia, uh, the ASX 200 is off a third of a percent. Uh, in Japan, stocks there, the Nikkei 225 down about half a percent. Cosby in South Korea is down close to 1%. Uh, futures markets indicating the Hang Seng is going to open about 200 points lower. And in the commodities markets this morning, uh, Brent crude oil trading at just above $74 uh, dollars a barrel. And gold right now, a little bit firmer, $1,778 an ounce. Thanks for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Do please join me again on Monday morning. Coming up next after the news is Back Chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast for today. Going to be fine, dry during the day. Maximum temperature of around 23 degrees. And then the outlook, mainly fine and dry in the next couple of days. Warm during the day on Sunday, but becoming cool on Monday. 20 degrees right now, 68% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.32, here's Todd Harding with a half-hour news. An engineer says the government needs to look for alternative water supplies as well as increase awareness of water conservation in the local population. Albert Lai from the Professional Commons was commenting after Shenzhen and Guangzhou warned of severe water shortages because of continuing drought in the river that supplies 70% of the SAR's fresh water, the Dongjiang River. Mr Lai said authorities could put more effort into fixing leaky pipes as well as speeding up construction of desalination plants. Because of climate change, we will be seeing more and more of this severe drought in future decades. At the moment, as a population, we are pretty complacent because we thought that we are protected by this water supply agreement from Guangdong. But in fact, if you look at what we call the total water resource management, since we are under the same watershed as big cities uh, for 40 million people, if the whole watershed is in trouble, then Hong Kong will be in trouble too. U.S. President Joe Biden has said democracy faces sustained and alarming challenges worldwide at the opening of a virtual summit for democracy. This gathering has been on my mind for a long time for a simple reason. In the face of sustained and alarming challenges to democracy, universal human rights, and all around the world, democracy needs champions. And I wanted to host this summit because here is the uh, here in the United States, We know, as well as anyone, that renewing our democracy and strengthening our democratic institutions requires constant effort. Democracy doesn't happen by accident. We have to renew it with each generation. And this is an urgent matter on all our parts, in my view. The Commissioner of the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Hong Kong, Liu Guangyan, had said the summit is aimed at distorting the meaning of democracy and stirring up political conflicts. 
Sculptures of the likeness of George Floyd, who died in the spring of 2020 after a Minneapolis police officer knelt on his neck for over nine minutes during an arrest, and Breonna Taylor, who was fatally shot by police raiding her apartment, are being auctioned at Sotheby's in New York to raise money for non-profit foundations set up by their families. Chris Carnabucci, the sculpture's creator, said he made them to capture a historically significant moment. Back in the summer of 2020, after George Floyd was killed, my wife suggested that I do a sculpture of George Floyd, not for any particular reason, um, but just more to capture this historically significant moment. The reason we're doing it is to raise funds and awareness. The six-foot-tall bronze painted sculpture of Floyd, which has been vandalized twice, could sell for more than 100,000 US dollars, while a smaller Taylor sculpture standing at four feet could sell for over 20,000 US dollars. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Janice Wong and your co-host today is Andrew Work. Good, Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Janice. I'm ready to rock and roll. Happy to be here. Today, we're talking about social welfare spending cards and the Leave Home Safe app. The social welfare department has told NGOs that received government funding that a planned 1% cut in recurrent expenditure for the next financial year will trickle down to them. However, Secretary for Labor and Welfare, Lord Chi Kwong, gave assurances that social welfare payments and subsidies for the elderly won't be affected. This comes as a new survey found that the pandemic has affected the earnings of Hong Kongers, driving many into debt, while the latest government projections indicate that the number of families living in subdivided flats will exceed 127,000 in the next decade, a record high. So what will be the effect of the planned welfare budget cut? Is now the right time to do this? From 9.15am, we'll talk about how people are coping with the new requirement for most people going to restaurants, cinemas and other designated venues to use the Leave Home Safe app. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Cliff Choi, Business Director at the Hong Kong Council of Social Service, Andrew Leung, a former Director General of Social Welfare, and Lai Kim Kwok from the Hong Kong Subdivided Flats Concerning Platform. Good morning to all of you. Good morning. And welcome to Backchat. Um, Let's start with you, Mr. Choi. The uh, government had announced in the budget this year that they would um, trim recurrent expenditure by 1% in the uh, 2022 to 23 fiscal year um, by requiring all policy bureaus and departments to cut spending without affecting livelihood-related expenditure. And uh, now your organization and other NGOs that uh, receive subsidies from the government have been sent a letter informing you of uh, the cut. What exactly have you been told? Yeah, um, uh, we are uh, being told exactly that um, we are going to be uh, cut uh, by 1% uh, next year uh, over uh, uh, the subsidies on the uh, welfare spending. Yeah, uh, we are quite uh, disappointed about that and worry about uh, such um will affect the uh, position to those uh, most needy, like those um, the elderly people, the people with disabilities, and uh, those uh, disadvantaged families. So uh, we uh, are 
we consider that um, uh, the cut um, may have uh, some impact on the services and would like to uh, ask for the government uh, for considerations of a wave on that. Yeah. I mean, 1% doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, if you've got a decent CFO or director, I mean, to find 1% cut, you know, and you could probably cut that out of head office. I mean, there was a charity last week. They were talking about the CEO making $265,000 a month. Um, I mean, why is everybody freaking out about 1%? Um, I think um, uh, we may uh, talk from two angles. And uh, first of all, the, um, advance, uh, the subsidies and expenditures uh, uh, on the welfare spending is, uh, is very uh, critical to those um, uh, people uh, who live in disadvantaged conditions. And, and in, indeed, the core structures of the welfare spending, uh, you can imagine, uh, mainly on the uh, livelihood of, of the people. For example, I, I would quote... Um, in the um, elderly residential uh, home for those uh, elder people. We take care of them 20, uh, 24 hours every day and uh, uh, every day is the whole year. Uh, we have to provide food for them and the food costs uh, compose a very significant part of our spending and uh, you can imagine that uh, we cannot cut any spending for that because it directly affects the, uh, the, the wellness and the health of those uh, the people. Well, that, that's what I'm saying. And, can't can't yeah. you find? Can't you cut in the head office in the administration instead of the programs? Yeah, yeah. and and also, uh, of course, the, you, you you mentioned about the staff course, and uh, most of all, the staff course is um, uh, very uh, very key because uh, most of the welfare services uh, is delivered through uh, manpower, so that um, we cannot. Uh, 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 cut the uh, salary of our uh, uh, direct provisions uh, to staff, and of course, and and uh, we cannot cut the provisions because the establishment is very lean, and and, and 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 that is the minimum requirement for the service provisions. How much does the C- course, How much does the CEO of the uh, Hong Kong Council of Social Services make? Yeah, and of course you can you can talk about the central administration and the CEO. Yeah, yeah that would be a separate um, uh, questions, and and I, I would like to address. Yeah, and 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 you 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 can of course um na- uh, 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 quote the that's uh, already in the in, in the in the in the in the news reporting and uh, the number uh, the salary levels of a particular CEO. Yeah, I I think it uh, it is not uh, fair for for just quote because uh, you must compare uh, the salary of CEO and against the. Uh, the whole expanding uh, of, of the organizations. And uh, from that point of view, um, uh, I think uh, it would be an existing uh, 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 establishment and, 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 and quite um, uh, reasonable uh, levels of expanding. So um, I think uh, we cannot uh, put the uh, CEO uh, salary and, 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 and the treatment of 1% cut uh, in the same discussion. So, so, Mr. Choi, what will this one percent cut mean for your organization? I mean, what expenditure, what expenditure will have to be a cut as a result? Um, yeah, we are still uh, struggling on that because we just uh, received the uh, letters, and, and and of course, uh, I think uh, most uh, NGOs would try to uh, 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 struggle about that and try to keep the services. And we do not. The least thing we we, we will do is to cut the services. Uh, as, as I said, the uh, uh, service is very uh, important to the uh, service recipient. 
And um, of course, as someone would say um, about the reserve, and I, I think you must uh, 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 raise that uh, whether we can uh, use our reserve to cover the uh, budget cut. Yeah, and uh, to, to our point, um, a healthy uh, organizations. Uh, it, it is quite reasonable to have certain levels of reserve. And right now in our system, uh, the government uh, only allow us to keep at most, at most, uh, three months of reserve. Yeah, so uh, we cannot keep our reserve more than that. So uh, three months of reserve uh, for organizations uh, hiring thousands of uh, uh, staff, uh, that is very minimum at, at the base, like I would say. Yeah, and uh, the budget cut, the 1% cut is really um, a long-term impact to our uh, 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 subsidies. So um, if it's uh, put into effect and considered the long-term effect, uh, we cannot expect organizations to use the reserve to cover those uh, cuts because uh, that would be a very long-term one. Yeah, and uh, what, so uh, you may you may aware that um, uh, one of the proposals of a council is to uh, uh, urge the government to consider that. If they really need to cut right now, yeah, uh, can they consider to give it back to us uh, and, 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 and put it back to the uh, basic levels when the economic situations improve? All right, let's, let's now bring in uh, Andrew Leung, a former Director General of Social Welfare. What do you think of the government's move, Mr Leung? Does it really have a choice given uh, the current economic climate and the fact that all government departments and bureaus are expected to cut expenditure in the next fiscal year? First of all, I'd like to put it in a bit of context. Uh, first of all, I think it's um, politically uh, incorrect uh, for the government to impose this cut uh, at a time uh, of the pandemics um, and a time of also increasing social inequality. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised that um, some um, uh, legislators would take this up in the newly formed Legislative Council. Uh, that's uh, the political angle. However, uh, being the uh, former Director General of Social Welfare, and I was the one who introduced uh, this new method of funding uh, to the um, social welfare sector, I started it, and it was um, made to happen uh, under Carrie Lamb, who was my successor at the time. Um, the idea is that um, before, uh, social welfare organizations were funded as if they were separate uh, small government departments, you know, with head by head and subhead and so on and so forth, uh, and all the salaries are now detailed and uh, item by item. That leaves no flexibility for the organisations to exercise uh, their um, imagination and, and innovation uh, to increase productivity. And so the idea was um, um, germinated at the time uh, to introduce a completely new system of funding, which is called the block. Um, uh, the, uh, the lump sum grant. Um, at that time, there was a lot of resistance in the welfare sector, uh, including some protests, uh, if I may say so. Um, and I was taking a lot of political flank. But I saw that that was the, really uh, the way to go about it because there are so many um, NGOs. And of course, Carrie Lam uh, was very, very successful, much more successful than I was, and make it happen. Now, um, I know where this uh, cut is coming from because uh, 1% uh, is not too much to ask um, organizations to exercise their uh, innovation to increase productivity. And they can move the funds around. Uh, they can uh, find a new way of doing things. 
um, they can deliver uh, the same or even better services uh, with uh, perhaps less people. Uh, for example, that's what's happening on the mainland, uh, facing uh, the kind of demo uh, demographic shift in the sense that there are more and more uh, elderly people and less and less working um, uh, members of the population. And yet, um, mainland um, uh, China introduced various um, uh, measures uh, like the use of um, um, uh, at the internet, uh, the robotics, um, innovation, automation, um, and, and, and also trying to um, deliver even better services because we're living in a new age uh, of uh, innovation, uh, productivity increases. So 1% is not, is not that much. But having said that, though, uh, one has got to make sure one of the main problems with the, um, the, the one-line vote um, the, uh, uh, the lump sum grant is that um, some uh, organizations squeeze their lower staff um, and then benefiting those higher up um, in order to um, uh, deliver apparently the same sort of service um, uh, without regard to the overall uh, quality uh, of the service uh, of the organization. So it's important for the government and the NGOs to ensure, uh, while uh, stressing for higher productivity, they have to ensure the quality of service, how to man measure the quality of service, not only in the eyes of those who are in charge, but in the eyes of the um, recipients of the services. And there ought to be some <coughs> sort of independent assessment. Um, and this is an ongoing exercise. I'm sure that this is will, will carry on uh, raising a lot of concerns and arguments and so on and so forth. But I, I know where the cut is coming from, um, and I agree that there's no, not much to ask um, in this day and age for organizations with this flexibility um, yeah. to really look around and uh, to see how can they deliver uh, the same uh, and even more uh, better service uh, with less, uh, a little bit of less resources. But, is not too much to ask. Yeah, I, I, like Hing Kwok, uh, you know, you're working with the uh, Lopadilla School of Social Sciences over there. One um, percent. Uh, now, Andrew Lung's saying, you know, block grants, then you're not constraining people by telling them exactly what they have to do with the money all the time, but you still have to have some oversight. Where does your organization fall on that that spectrum? Are you guys saying, yeah, one percent, we can figure out a way to do things smarter? Or what's your what's your plan for this? Well, uh, that's what uh Although I'm not focusing on the um, social welfare step, that I'm, so, um, I'm also a social worker. But I think that uh, the social welfare field, most important is manpower. And, and in this quite competitive uh, stage, uh, I think everyone knows that there's many people migrate to other countries, so that uh, we need uh, manpower. As, for example, in my, in my institute, we are quite looking for lecturers, so, but uh, we need to pay. Uh, enough money. Other, otherwise, there are people going around to other services. I think that's the same as in the social welfare field that um, uh, social workers, many social workers moving away from Hong Kong. So if you want to uh, to keep the people, the manpower stable, then you need to uh, uh, put enough resources for those uh, people. So that I think that it's, although they're saying that one percent is not, uh, not a big deal, uh, not a big money, but uh, if we put that all on the, on the service, uh, on, on the staff course, that it may hardly to, to keep the, the stable manpower to, to serve so uh, people who are in uh, vulnerable situations. 
But does it make them a little bit fat and lazy if they just say, oh, you know, we'll get another plus 5% next year, do everything the same as last year because our revenue is guaranteed, we can just pay everybody 5% more and, you know, same old, same old with no, improves, no, no, no incentive to improve productivity? Yeah, maybe because uh, when we know that that uh, there, there's a higher uh, command from the higher uh, uh, level, so that uh, everyone needs to, to cut them uh, at least one percent. So next year maybe no, you have no more salary uh, increase, and then but you still need to keep at the uh, same level or same quality of services. So I think uh, in the shortage of staff, that that may uh, put the, uh, those vulnerable people in a quite uh, worse scenario. Uh, because I think man, uh, social welfare is a, is a service that where we need manpower, and I don't think that uh, uh, and even uh, we have a good uh, innovation in technology that cannot replace those uh, people who have the heart and also have the caring to the, those uh, people who are in need. Mr. Lai, uh, like I mentioned at the start of the program, this cut in welfare spending comes uh, as the uh, latest government projections in the annual long-term housing strategy report show that the number of families living in subdivided flats and other cramped spaces will hit a record 127,100 over the next decade. What do you think of the uh, latest figure? I think uh, the subdivided unit is uh, still uh, increasing. As, uh, we, we found out that uh, uh, every year uh, it increased about 3% of uh, or households who are living in subdivided units. And I know that uh, the government is uh, putting a lot of effort to, to build up some transitional housing. But still, I think the, the, the supply is still far from the demand. And as far as I know, I, 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 I did some uh, calculation for those uh, transitional housing. So as a, message, as a measure to reduce the, the living uh, situation of the uh, subdivided universities, but most of the rest are uh, the, the units in, this, in, in the northern part of the New Territories. So if they, I, I tell you there's about, about uh, the, the ten, uh, hundreds of thousands of units in the, the New Territories. And the government say that there will um, another 5,000 more. But I'm quite uh, worried that, that this 5,000 units will be the uh, same as uh, before, before that's uh, located in the New Territories. That may not help our subdivided uh, unit residents. And as uh, the, uh, the Secretary of the, the uh, uh, Transitional and Housing, uh, Transport and Housing Bureau stated that uh, the long term, in long term, that uh, the uh, public housing is still far from supply. Uh, it mostly will be located in the, in the, uh, the uh, uh, one third, only one third of the uh, supply can meet in the early part of the 10 years. So I think there's still a long period of waiting, uh, and I, I'm quite worried about the residents of the subdivided unit who are still staying in the worst, quite worst scenario. And Mr. Lai, how common is it for tenants of subdivided flats to be beneficiaries of welfare programs offered by government-funded NGOs? I think uh, uh, the, uh, you, if you mean that the, the social thing and also the, the cash hours, I think there was uh, some welcome that uh, measures because uh, they're still reducing some of their their, their stress. But still, I, we, we need more, uh, especially the transitional housing, uh, which should be located in the city center. And I think the another issue is about the, the uh, tenants control. It will be enforced uh, in the late uh, January. But uh, we are asking for the government to clarify whether those the contract signers Within this period, we are uh, affected by the uh, the new uh, tenants control. Because otherwise, then the the tenants, uh, the, the landlord, will put 
many different kind of uh, uh, constraints or rules or, 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 or in the new in the contract signed during this period. So I think we some we welcome the, the new measures, but still we have some worry about the the the, the uh, new deal arrangement. Mr. Choi, I know your organisation has uh, several several uh, temporary housing projects. Will these be affected by budget cuts? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I didn't heard about that, so uh, I hope so not. Uh, yeah, uh, because uh, uh, we are in the contract uh, uh, arrangement, so I hope that the government respect the contract uh, spirit, uh, even they introduce the uh, budget cut. So uh, as, as, as what uh, Mr. Leung uh, just, just said about the change uh, from the uh, uh, convention uh, mode of subvention to the lump sum mode, um, I think 20 years ago. Yeah, I think I also also would, also would like to point out one thing about the uh, contractual agreement between the government and the NGOs, because at that time we uh, decided an agreement uh, to uh, determine the level of uh, subvention. Uh, of the lump sum grant, that is called the uh, main, uh, the, the the benchmark level. Uh, that is the um, benchmark with the uh, the MPS, the midpoint of the MPS. So uh, after that, um, the government introduced a number of uh, 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 expenditure cut, and uh, uh, and we wonder uh, would that uh, uh, be um, fair to the NGOs who signed the contract and expect the agreed uh, level of subvention um, at, at, at that point of time. Yeah, uh, uh, would that government allow it to, um, to, 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 to cut um, uh, the, 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 uh, the subsidy uh, 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 disregard of the uh, contract aside between the NGOs and the government? Yeah, we really wonder about that. Do you, do you think the Hong Kong Council of Social Services would sue the government for breach of contract if they thought they had a shot at getting the funding restored? Yeah, we are happy to explore these uh, opportunities, of course, and 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 and, and uh, yeah, But in principle, uh, we think um, we already entered in a, a, a contractual commitment, uh, a, a, a contractual agreement uh, between the government and the NGOs uh, 20 years ago uh, when we entered into the lump sum grant, and we take up these um, obligations um, uh, for flexibilities and improvement and innovations, all that kind. Uh, uh, which is based on that agreement. So you, the courts could be a solution. Janice? Um, I have two emails here. Just uh, let me uh, read these before the uh, news summary. Um, this one is from John. I think he's referring to uh, your comment earlier, Andrew. He says, exactly. NGO CEOs and management grade pay themselves very, very well. And the argument that NGO CEOs should be equal to other organizations is completely absurd. They are not the same. And another email from Jess, it's, um, the email says, all speakers skillfully avoiding a cut to CEO salaries speaks volumes. So, so Mr. Choi, what's your response to that? I mean, is it possible to cut, uh, um, and when you do the uh, budget cut, uh, can you cut salaries instead of services? Uh, yeah, uh, I, 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 I mean, I salaries think, uh, of the, uh, the, the CEOs. Yeah, I think I think salary of CEO is part of expenditures. I, 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 of course, I, I admitted that uh, it, 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 uh, it has to be the decisions of each individual's organization how to treat those um, uh, uh, budget cuts. Yeah, but uh, the point I, I, I would say is um, it is not uh, quite fair um, to take up um, um, uh, 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 the, the CEO levels um, of one particular NGO 
uh, and which we need to compare the responsibilities of that particular uh, uh, level of um, uh, uh, talent uh, in the market. Yeah, so um, yeah, it, that, that will better, better uh, compare uh, the theory of NGOs, CEOs, and, and, and others, uh, and the CEOs in other sectors. I think a fair comparison is required if we put this comment. Yeah, just for just for people who want to look into this a little bit more, uh, I'm reading from the Hong Kong Free Press story a couple of years ago. According to a government manual on lump sum grants, any NGO that receives more than Hong Kong $10 million from the Social Welfare Department or whose funding exceeds 50% of its operating income has to report the remuneration packages of staff in the top three earning tiers. So if people want, they can get this data because it is available on uh, government websites, and that's usually when these stories come out about CEOs at you know social services councils earning you know two point five million a year. All right, Mr. Choi, um, uh, uh, Mr. Leung, what do you think of uh, these uh, calls? I mean, by by some of our listeners for for the for CEOs to be to to uh, receive a salary cut in, instead of uh, welfare services when, when when we have to cut the budget. Well, I think that there is uh, uh, some uh, argument uh, that if you compare. Uh, the CEOs of the sometimes NGOs, they're, they're, they're actually uh, relatively uh, quite well paid. But I wouldn't um, uh, target my comments uh, specifically on on the salary uh, uh, alone. I think it's got to be looked at as a whole. Each uh, NGOs have a different kind of um, delivery, different uh, services. Um, at different models, uh, even uh, I think that the uh, uh, the idea of the cut is to force the, all the NGOs to have a look. How can they can uh, deliver uh, using their innovation, using modern technology? All right, all right, Mr. Uh, Long, um, Mr. Long, Mr. Long, um, I know uh, you'll be you'll be staying with us for a bit longer, so we can continue our discussion right after the news uh, because uh, we have to um, take a short break for the news summary right now. Um, thanks again to uh, Cliff Choi for joining us this morning. He's the business director at the Hong Kong Council of Social Service and. And also many thanks to Lai Kwok from the Hong Kong Subdivided Flats Concerning Platform. And uh, now the weather forecast, mainly fine and dry with highs of around 23 degrees. Right now it's 21 degrees and the relative humidity is at 66%. We'll be back in three minutes. ...the meaning of democracy and stirring up political conflicts. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Friday morning with Andrew Work and me, Janice Wong. Let's go straight back to our discussion on welfare spending cuts as the economy turn continues to suffer from the effects of COVID-19. A recent survey has found that the pandemic has affected the earnings of Hong Kongers, driving many into debt. For more details, we're joined on the line now by Christine Tam from the Hong Kong Christian Service, who carried out the study. Good morning to you, Ms. Tam. Good morning. And welcome to Backchat. Um, before you tell us about your survey findings, I just want to remind those of you tuning in that if you have any questions or comments on today's topics, uh, feel free to contact us. Our email is uh, backchat at rthk.hk. Our telephone number is 233-88266. And our Facebook page is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. All right, Ms. Tam, uh, can you first tell us uh, the main findings of your study? Well, uh there are three major findings in our survey. Uh, the first one is uh, we found that uh, quite a number of respondents suffered from reduced income, while some of them have to borrow money uh, for over 46% of respondents. 
suffered from reduced income uh, during the pandemic with an average decrease of around 38%. And the lowest household income uh, lasts for around 8.5 months on average. And um, for those who lost income during the pandemic, they um, still earning less than what they had before the pandemic. And most of them have to use their savings to meet the daily expenses, while 41% had to borrow money, mainly from relatives, and then, and some even got personal loan from bank uh, and over a draft credit card. Yeah, um, credit card's a killer. Yeah. <laughs> and the average amount uh, of low was um, $77,500. And uh, there's still no real end in sight uh, to the pandemic. Do you expect this problem to worsen? Yeah, yeah because uh, we don't know when will the pandemic end. And we probably have to admit that maybe we have to live with the disease together. <laughs> Yeah, when it comes to debt in Hong Kong, you know, when you talk about people getting into debt, and you know, credit, as I just quipped, you know, the credit card debt's the worst. Do you, do you think that we're, we, we don't have enough freedom in terms of how people can take out loans um, for financial institutions from the fintech sector to offer more small loans at lower interest rates and credit card? Do you, th- do you think that we're maybe a little bit constrained in that area? Well, um, actually, in the survey, we didn't ask the uh, respondent to to say whether it is um, the business uh, responsibility to uh, provide this um, benefit to to borrowing money. But we do ask whether it is uh, the government responsibility to do something to help these unemployed people. Um, for example, we do have. Um, uh, found out that the government during the pandemic have to take some uh, action in relax the uh, CSSA uh, application eligibility um, criteria. But the, for example, the relaxation of the access limit and also disregarding the total cash value of insurance policy. But these two measures um, have already ended. So we suggest the government maybe should reconsider these uh, measures. And also one of the suggestions is um, government should consider allowing an early withdrawal of the MPF for people who are unemployed or those who experience um, uh, income, uh, income loss. Now, wouldn't that kind of run counter to the whole point of the MPF, which is that you're supposed to have money when you get old? I mean, if you use it all up before you get old, and you get old, and you're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I don't have any money now that I'm old. Whoops. Yeah, yeah, we, we all know that the, the MPF is actually uh, some reserve for, for, for the, the retirement. So after we retire, we have the money to support our life. But the immediate problem is they, these unemployed or underemployed, uh, now they... Uh, lost all their savings, they have spent all their savings, and now they have to borrow money. What they have experienced is um, their daily life, how to support their daily life, how to um, have money to to spend on the, uh, to meet the daily expenses. So we have to make the balance, yeah. Yeah. Also still on the line with us uh, is Andrew Leung, a former Director General of Social Welfare. So, so uh, Mr Leung, what are your thoughts on this finding? 
Well, I think that these uh, surveys um, and the early discussion uh, have highlighted the fact that the, um, there is increasing inequality. Uh, this is not just a Hong Kong problem, it's worldwide. Especially this uh, problem has been uh, aggravated uh, by the impact of the pandemics. Um, I think especially in Hong Kong, where people, um, a lot of people are living in cage uh, or subdivided flats, um, so the idea is that, that you know, this uh, a large sector of the community are actually allowed to live in undignified lives. And this is not something that Hong Kong should tolerate. In fact, that has been highlighted by Beijing as well. So I think that all these problems should really be addressed uh, openly uh, and also um, involving the legislators. And I think that uh, this should be debated uh, in the newly formed uh, Legislative Council. This is the very uh, precisely the sort of issues that should be addressed usefully uh, in the Legislative Council. And in fact, this leads, on, leads me to, to uh, actually encourage uh, more people to come out to vote uh, for the legislators who, who, who have their welfare at heart um, to, you know, to sit in the legislative councils and hold the government to account. Uh, I think this is, would be welcomed uh, by Hong Kong, uh, by the Hong Kong government, and also welcomed by Beijing as well, because this is precisely the road uh, Hong Kong should uh, 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 progress, uh, building a society that is uh, more just, um, um, and allowing uh, the older people and the poorer people to live more dignified lives uh, and to uh, in encourage innovation and productivity. So I think that this is a very complex issue, not only in the social welfare sector, but since we are talking about the sector, it is, uh, a, a, and, and indeed it's a very, very important sector because it touches on not only um, um, a daily living, but also um, quality of housing, uh, access, um, equality, um, I think that, that, uh, that we should really uh, press for these issues to be debated in the Legislative Council and to encourage more people to come out to vote. Yeah, sometimes you don't even have to innovate. You just can look around the region and say, hey, who, who's doing a better job of it than we are? And could we try some of that? I mean, when it comes to housing, a lot of people in Hong Kong point to Singapore and say, look, look at the Singaporean model. You know, could we build bigger flats that people have an opportunity to acquire? Christine Tam, in your sector, when you look at your counterparts in other places across Asia, uh, who do you think is doing it right? And is there something that we could emulate in Hong Kong that would help to alleviate some of these problems? Well, I think not only the government, but uh, different stakeholders should be involved to um, contribute to discuss about uh, what ways uh, is um, the best for the Hong Kong people, not only the social um, uh, welfare or the social service organization, but also the government, the business, um, many parties to be involved. Yeah, but, but do you just look at Hong Kong for solutions or do you look and say, are they doing something in Taiwan that might work or something in Singapore or Korea that, that maybe we could apply here in Hong Kong? Or do you just look at Hong Kong like it's the only place in the world? Uh, well, I think many overseas examples are uh, good reference for us. Say um, one of the suggestions in our survey is uh, the government in the long run established an unemployment support scheme on a time limit uh, basis. And many overseas countries already have this practice. But in Hong Kong, we, uh, I would say we have not yet started to discuss or to study this, um, this scheme. So maybe uh, it's a during this pandemic, is uh, 
it's time to think about whether it is applicable to apply this employment support scheme in Hong Kong. Right, Andrew Long, at the first half of the show, you, you made reference to innovations in welfare provision uh, in China, uh, mainland China. What, what other, are there any other programs, specific programs that you can point to that say that we could look at adopting in Hong Kong? I say, um, oh, I mean, sorry, I, I was I was putting that to Andrew. Look, I, I'm not going to ask you the same question twice. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> sorry, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, housing is, is of course is, is a very very acute um, issue in Hong Kong, mm. uh, and in fact in other countries, but particularly in Hong Kong because of the lack of land. Well, when you say lack of land, people ask, well, there's lots of land. Um, for example, um, over half, nearly half of the Hong Kong land is occupied by country parks. So it's a question of balance uh, and also how to make the um, uh, various measures to release land more rapidly uh, rather than being brought down by a lot of red tape um, going through from one government to, uh, 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 department to another. Uh, and also a lot of land is held in the hands of the so-called um, um, uh, village housing um, Again, uh, a lot of the uh, land in the new territories is now being um, have uh, ready access to public transport. So there is a lot of areas where we can look at, um, and and also with the northern metropolis idea uh, is now being um, uh, implemented. Um, the, uh, the how to, d- to develop the kind of land uh, up north, uh, so so that to um, uh, more people can have more affordable housing, and using the uh, very extensive um, MTR network uh, to get to work and and to build new com- uh, communities, you know, in various uh, clusters. So there's a lot of long-term issues, and I think that the uh, one of the major problem uh, in the government is that some departments still thinking in terms of silos. You know, the, if there's uh, my department, um, I do not dare to, 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 to stay outside. You know, my department limit, that results in a lot of lack of coordination uh, between a lot of departments. So I think that this is, again, uh, another issue uh, which should be usefully debated in the Legislative Council. Well, certainly we'll hope, hopefully we'll have some use, useful debate. But, uh, Andrew, are there any other programs in other, other, other cities in Asia? Uh, because, I mean, other places have similar problems, like, like our subdivided housing. You know, the movie uh, Parasite shed a light on the, the, the problem, you know, kind of the, the situation faced with people living in basement, you know, horrible conditions in basement dwellings in Seoul. Um, but is anybody doing it right outside of Hong Kong that we can look to for solutions? Well, uh, can, I, can I mention something that's happening in China? Um, I, of course, China is, the, is, the, is the, the, has the world's largest population, one fifth of mankind, um, and then housing and urbanization is a big, big issue. Uh, as I said, uh, China is facing the, um, uh, the challenges uh, of a declining uh, workforce. Uh, they're how to increase productivity. What they're doing is a to connect all the cities uh, throughout um, uh, China by high-speed rail. Um, as you, as has been pointed out, uh, China's already had the, uh, the world's largest network of high-speed rail, uh, uh, amounting to something 35,000 uh, kilometers. But China's going to double that to 70,000 kilometers uh, within about 10 to 15 years. And how does that impact uh, on so social welfare? It's to connect all the cities around uh, China, however remote. And then the smaller towns will be connected by rail, uh, by other rail, or by um, uh, high-speed, uh, uh, 
uh, highways. Mm. Um, now, with this uh, uh, connectivity, there are going to be a lot of cities in it. And then uh, a lot of the cities are formed into clusters. So you can see the city clusters um, in, uh, up north, around Beijing, west of Beijing, and also central China. And each of these big clusters, sometimes as big as a small country, and they are all connected. So there is an increased productivity, increased free flow of people, uh, ideas, goods, um, businesses, jobs. Um, so that's the, the whole, whole idea of, 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 of uh, urbanization and better living for most of the people. But as far as housing is concerned, I mean, Hong Kong is, 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 a, is, is a very, very unique situation. Um, uh, a lot of the, the, the land, of course, is hilly, um, but of course, uh, country parks, we don't want to sacrifice our country parks. Uh, but on the other hand, um, we should use our innovation. And, and, and as I said, there are a lot of land held in the car brownfield sites, in village housing, um, and also in the, the big um, northern metropolis idea. I think we should press ahead with it and involving the whole community uh, in a kind of joint effort and ironing out uh, a lot of problems or raising these problems even in advance so that they could be properly debated and discussed uh, in the Legislative Council and okay. force the government to move forward faster. A little, little off topic, but I guess we'll uh, give us some more perspective. Thank you very much. Janice. All right. Uh, we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Andrew Leung, a former Director General of Social Welfare, and uh, Christine Tam from the uh, Hong Kong Christian Service. It's uh, now 17 minutes past nine, and it's time to turn to our final topic today, and that is the mandatory use of the Leave Home Safe app. Yesterday was the first day that the use of the government's COVID location recording app was made compulsory at a number of specified premises, including gyms, cinemas and restaurants. Elderly people aged 65 and above and those under 16 years old are exempt from the new rule. To uh, find out how it all went, we're joined on the line now by James Robertson, the owner of the Grappa's restaurant chain. Good morning, James. Good morning, Janice. Thanks, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. So, so how did it go? Well, to be honest, uh, we might not be the best ones to to evaluate the, the process because actually, it really streamlines everything for us. I mean, uh, having uh, less people write down the, the information on a piece of paper and actually using the app, which has become more convenient. I, I know myself. In the early days, I didn't use the app. I just kept writing it down on a piece of paper kind of got tired of that as I go in this establishment and that establishment. So at the end, uh, people have adapted pretty well, and it actually makes it easier for us. And uh, so it's gone very smoothly. I, try, I checked with three or four of the managers last night of our outlets, and everybody is quite pleased with it. But I did note that uh, yesterday there was a, a wire, uh, a news wire out, a government official uh, commenting about um, common sense because there was a, a commercial radio interview and an operator said, well, we're a little bit concerned about how we identify if somebody is under 16 or, or is it 16 or they're under. And they, uh, the officials are saying, oh, just use common sense. The kids, of course, know how, how old they are. Uh, common sense is obviously not there because uh, a 16-year-old may say he's 15 when he's trying to not use the, the home app. And uh, a few hours later, down at the corner shop, telling the shopkeeper that he's uh, 18 when he's purchasing cigarettes and beer. So <laughs> I don't think that was a very responsible oh, yeah. uh, comment from a government official. 
And, and I think really, not that you're asking this, but uh, just the overall, it, it, it's kind of lacks just sticking out to the catering industry and the, the rules and the imposition of these rules. Um, having four classifications, A, B, C, D, restaurants, each one having different seating requirements, operating hour requirements, uh, it's a little bit absurd. I mean, if, if somebody's got the virus and they walk in, whether it's an A, B, C, or D, there's the risk of passing it on. I mean, I think that these rules should be pretty much the same for all categories, and, and everybody should have the mask rules that when they're walking through the restaurant and, and blah, 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 and when they sit down and they start eating, they can take their mask off. And, I mean, it's just common sense. And whether you've got four people at a table or eight people at the table or 12 people at the D, table, D classification table, it's a little bit... <laughs> It's just quite strange that they should have all these classifications. I think that a lot of these officials have been uh, living in a cocoon of their uh, government career development and, and really need to interface more with operators and people that have the experience in the street. So, yes, common sense should be applied, but uh, it hasn't always been demonstrated by the government, in my view. Yeah, I know a lot of people in the restaurant industry feel like they've been unfairly singled out when they see other types of venues operating at full capacity. I uh, I was in the I was in the boxing ring for the uh, Lam Tung fight, and there were two thousand people in the stadium. You know, seat, seat by seat, there was you know, there's no. I mean, you know, there wasn't really any need for any social distancing. But I mean, uh, they're still forcing that on restaurants. Are you still under the? Are you still working with uh, seating restrictions in terms of how many uh, how close tables can be in a in a restaurant? Yeah, they still categories and then they're pushing everybody towards the D or trying to and um, and uh, yeah D you can have uh, 12 people at the table and uh, a C you can have six people at the table and a B you can have four and a, an A restaurant that has to close at 6 p.m. every day they can have two at the table I mean and then these little dividers they put up these little plastic dividers I mean does that really stop the transmission of the virus if it's in the air and the air conditioning is blowing or, or whatever. Uh, I, I just find that a bit <laughs> absurd. And as I say, I mean, uh, people, are, yes, they're wearing their masks, but they're uh, cheek jowl on the MTR or bus or whatever. So public places, it's coming down hard on the uh, catering industry. And uh, one of the other things, Andy, is that um, a couple of weeks ago they said, oh, if somebody's using a, a fake uh, 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 pass and home pass application fake application well the operator is responsible now how i certainly couldn't identify a fake application from a real application and i doubt that many of my staff could do that either is, is that still is that still the case i got i got a notice yesterday i think it was from the fcc and they said listen if, if you are using one of those it's on you're going to get a five thousand dollar fine well that's that's true. The, the individual is going to get, if they get caught, the individual is going to get a $5,000 fine, yes. And, and what they do is they punish the restaurant and make them close for, at 6 p.m. for a week as punishment. Mm. Now, they're also talking about, uh, there was a, last week there was a, an announcement that sometime in January, not specific, but they expect in January, to uh, require everybody, all patrons are going to have to have uh, a vaccine and they have to have prove that when they come into the restaurant. Well, if we're going to have to, we're going to have to hire extra staff to stand at the door to see everybody's uh, mobile and proof that they actually have the vaccine. <laughs> they don't have to prove they have the vaccine to get on the bus or the MTR, but they've got to have proof they have the vaccine, and we have to verify that. Now, there's the verification, and again, if it's a fake, I don't know. I mean, one guy's got the vaccines, and five of his buddies put it on their their phone and say they're Joe Wong and. Uh, 
it's, uh, I got my vaccines. I don't know how we're going to verify that. I just think that uh, it's it's a burden that shouldn't be overused and, and placed on the, the catering industry. And I think there was literally one case of spread in a restaurant a couple of years ago in the entirety of Hong Kong and COVID. I mean, we had a little bit of it. Um, I mean, it's not like restaurants have been a particular problem outside of other industries, have they? Well, no, yeah. There's literally that one hot pot case a couple of years ago. Well, there's ago. an incidence in uh, a few illegal or upstairs restaurants and also in, in some bars uh, near Lan Kwai Fung or whatever. But those incidents are fairly isolated. But then a whole bunch of people got quarantined and this and that. And, but the whole industry suffered, even though... We've never had a case. Yeah, I think even the Lan Kwai Fung case at Insomnia was because it was the band members and they all lived together. You well, know, so yeah, when they when they looked into it, it wasn't because they got it from each other. The rest, it's because they all lived in the same flat. <laughs> yeah, surely that was the, uh, the transmission mode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and James, this morning we, we actually got a message from uh, Simon Wong, uh, who's the president of the Hong Kong Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades. Uh, and he, he seems to think that the first day of uh, mandatory use of the Leave Home Safe app uh, was uh, generally smooth. And But then he said the uh, Food and Environmental Hygiene Department has, has not distributed the materials needed for blind people to use the app at restaurants. I, I think he's referring to the uh, Braille rail covers uh, that that was going to be provided by the government. Have you received those covers? Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I have a, a lady in my office who does all of those things and communicates with the government agencies and, uh, and puts those all out to the restaurant. I know we, we talked with a number of our managers on Wednesday in, in preparation for the so-called uh, new transition that started yesterday, but it was very smooth for us. I, I can imagine that because we're we're dealing in uh, English-speaking uh, patrons, whether they're locals or foreigners, but they're pretty much uh, English-speaking, and it's a, a Western uh, concept. I suspect that if you're running up a, a some restaurant in uh, Wong Tai Sin or Mongkok or somewhere, and you've got a lot of 50-, 60-year-old patrons, that some of them are maybe not going to be able to, to use the app or willing to use the app, and there may be an impact on the, their sales at that level. But I think for the Western restaurants, particularly here on Hong Kong Island, largely speaking, it was very smooth. Right, and, and I th- it seems like most restaurants now, they, the staff have all become fully vaccinated. Uh, most employers have made it a condition of working. Well, that's right. We, we've actually, sadly, we, we, we've, uh, we have about 200-plus uh, staff in our group of restaurants. Wow. And we probably had a dozen or so that uh, left because they refused it just refused to get the vaccine. Hmm. And then what are you going to do? I mean, we just, we had to say bye. It's just, it's, it's kind of tough. And some of the, one of the guys has been with me 30 years and he just, he refused to take the vaccine. He's almost crying when he said goodbye. Wow. I, mean, I was crying too. And he's going to find it probably difficult to find employment elsewhere if he's not willing to take the vaccine. Yeah. Well, this guy is about 62, 63. I think he's just choosing to retire. Ah. Gotcha. Um, I asked before, but I wasn't quite clear on the answer. Um, are you still working under restrictions as to how many seats and tables you can put in a space, or is that is that done now? I'm sorry, how many people you can put on a stage? Uh, sorry, in your space. I'm asking about seating capacity. You know, we, we went through a phase where <clears throat> restaurants were told they had to have 50% of their normal capacity. Yeah. Tables had to be 1.1, was it 1 meter, 1.1 meter, 1.5 meters apart, which reduced the amount of seats you could put in the restaurant, which, of course, reduced the amount of money you could earn. 
which is a real problem for a lot of restaurants. What, what are those? What is the status of those restrictions now? Well, you're correct, Andy, and, and clearly, if you could, if the days when you could only use fifty percent of the space, but you had to pay a hundred percent of the rent, it was yeah. impossible to make money now or to, to break even. Even um, now, the D category, I'm, I'm not too clear anymore on the ADs. We just had an application yesterday for our last remaining C license to be converted to a D license. And the D license now, you can use 100% and a maximum seating of 12 for a table. So uh, that's okay now. We're, we're, we're alive and well. Okay, got you. So it's okay. So as long as you're willing to impose the maximum checking on your guests and have all your staff vaccinated, then you can go to 100% capacity. And uh, and then just briefly, I know uh, Christmas is uh, coming up; it's just around the corner. Uh, what's uh, what's business like over Christmas? I mean, from what what you can see now. Well, we we are getting a lot of bookings, um, and, and not just uh, for a table of four or whatever. One of my places yesterday had fifty people uh, booking for lunch and one hundred and twenty people booking for for dinner, and um, we with seating capacity one hundred and seventy seven. But they booked the restaurant with 120, and uh, so yeah, we've, we've got a lot of inquiries and a lot of companies. I think last year people were afraid to have sort of a Christmas celebration, a Christmas office party, but there seems to be uh, much more traffic going out there this year, and uh, business has certainly picked up. Not all my outlets are doing as well as I'd like, but on the whole, we're reasonably happy. Well, Jar, I'll remember that I have to book ahead when I'm bringing the family down for dinner. We're big fans of Grappas, so uh, glad to have mm-hmm. your input. Look forward to seeing. All right, James, we'll uh, have to leave it there for now. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. That's uh, James Robertson, the owner of the Grappa's restaurant chain. And also many thanks to all of you who commented through email. And thank you to my co-host Andrew and Yuki, our producer. That's it for us this week. We'll be back at 8.30 on Monday. And... uh, now here's the weather. It will be uh, mainly a fine and dry during the day with a maximum temperature of around 23 degrees. Winds moderate east to northeasterly is occasionally fresh. And the outlook mainly fine and dry in the next couple of days. Right now it's 21 degrees, relative humidity 65%. The 2021 Legislative Council general election is on December 19th. Electors should wear a mask, have their temperature checked and sanitize their hands. A special queue will be set up for persons aged 70 or above or with disabilities and pregnant women. Electors must show their ID cards. Staff will use the electronic poll register to issue ballots. The geographical and functional constituency ballots should be unfolded with the marked side face down and go into the correct boxes. It's now at 9.31, the news with Todd Harding. An engineer says the government needs to look for alternative water supplies as well as increase awareness of water conservation in the local population. Albert Lai from the Professional Commons was commenting after Sunjin and Guangzhou warned of severe water shortages because of continuing drought in the river that supplies 70% of the SAR's fresh water. An appeal court in the United States has rejected a request by Donald Trump to withhold documents from a congressional select committee that's probing the January the 6th attack on the Capitol building. The judges gave Mr Trump 14 days to appeal to the Supreme Court. And workers at a Starbucks coffee shop in Buffalo in upstate New York have voted to start a union. 
Starbucks decertified unions in the US more than three decades ago and it's fought hard to dissuade employees from joining. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? You're not too bad at all. Good morning. You never Facebook chat with me. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is the Morning Brew. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Friday here on the Morning Brew. Great to be back with you all the way through until one o'clock for this weekend and this weekend only. You can go to Central Market to visit Urban Market Less Is More. And there you can see the work of several of Hong Kong's top urban designers. Now put very simply, you'll be able to find some very cool day-to-day things, stuff that you never knew you needed, but now you can't live without. Curator of this whole thing is Professor Alvin Yip from the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. He will be with us at 10.10. And at 11.10, Danny Hicks brings you this week's Ashes and F1 Sports and All. And we're off to the movies at 12.10 with critic James Marsh. For reviews of One Second, Drive My Car, Clifford the Big Red Dog and more. So join Marshy and Danny on Facebook Live. See you there. Help us out now. You sure do treat me right yeah. Merry Christmas, baby You know you surely do treat me right Oh, we both got diamond rings for Christmas, yeah I'm living in paradise Baby, I'm so lucky now yeah. I'm feeling real lucky this morning Got Christmas music on the radio So told now, oh yeah Said I came down the chimney About a half past three Left lots of presents for my baby and me now Merry Christmas, baby Are you sure to treat me so 